from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. And we're recording, you know, a little taking folks, you know, backstage. We're recording on Mardi Gras. Craig, I'm assuming you earned every one of those beads you're wearing. You know what? I love a good bead. Wow, there is a really loud car passing my house right now that probably (laughs) everyone just heard. I apologize for that if you did. yeah, no, no, no beats for me tonight. Unfortunately, though, <laughs> too busy, too busy working and dedicating all my life to everything I'm, I'm doing for all you people out there. So yeah. uh, I, I did sit on the couch and say uh, "Laissez les bon temps rouler," but uh, other than that, that's the most Mardi Gras I had in my life tonight. Ooh, Tish, that's French. Yes, yes, uh, let I, the good times roll. <laughs> I, I listened to the the Mardi Gras essentials on um, Apple Music until until they got. In into some hip-hop stuff that I was a little um, shocked about. Huh, <laughs> yeah. That sounded very Mardi Gras to me. And then, uh, and then uh, Sirius Radio, the real, the, um, I don't know, Station 67, the jazz station. They've been playing Mardi Gras music since Saturday, so that's been fun. Yeah. But I went up into the attic and I dug out, my, I have a Mardi Gras box. I thought, what's in here? And it's, it's two little plushes of Mickey and Minnie dressed in their Mardi Gras outfits. Oh, and that's awesome. More, I don't know where I got all these beads because I didn't earn them all. But I have a whole lot of beads. <laughs> I used to have a lot because I would keep them from Universal anytime I'd go see the parade. Like, as if I was never going to find beads ever again anywhere. So I had to hold on to these with with every inch of my life. And then it got to the point where I just, I looked through everything I had one day and I was like, I can't, I, I just can't do this. I have I have probably like five pounds full of beads that I don't do anything with, but just let it collect dust. And so now when I go to like universal Mardi Gras, since I don't do the real Mardi Gras, anytime I catch any beads, I just hand them off to a kid nearby and watch them get happy. I think some of mine were from the Disneyland Party Gras Parade from way back when. Yep, yep. And then, uh, and then from New Orleans, because I, I went to a couple of conferences where right at the beginning of Mardi Gras season. Oh, the fun. That's so, yeah. something I haven't yeah. done yet. It was, it was crazy. It was not on the day. I don't think I'd ever go on the day. Yeah. But it, there's, it's, it's long because the different parishes all have their own Mardi Gras parades. Yeah. And so I happen to go to a few of those. So they're much smaller in scale, but they still throw the beads. You know, a lot of times it's it's the local high school is putting them on. Yeah. The local communities and all that. And, uh, and they're a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I actually had never known that before. Uh, I thought, mm-hmm. like, Mardi Gras was a thing that only happened on, on actual Mardi Gras Day. And then it was once I... I 
came to to work at the Diz, and you know Corey is always at Mardi Gras every year, and then he explained like, well, no, you know, I do the one parade on this day, and then I walk on this and this day, and it's mm-hmm. actually already. I come at the end of it; it's already been happening for for weeks at that point. Yeah, like, I yeah, just it's true. Didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then and you just celebrated your birthday. So happy birthday! Good, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So and so, well, how did you and Kylie celebrate? Um, uh, just uh, you know, dinner. Movie, lunch, I think it was lunch. It was lunch and a movie. So Lego Movie 2, don't recommend. Uh, (laughs) Chances are by the time this is out, it probably won't be in a lot of theaters anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you know what? If you have time to... uh if you have time to blow at home once it is released, I would say watch Wreck-It Ralph 2 instead. Ralph breaks the internet. <laughs> and and if you Netflix. want to build something with your Legos. Yeah. Exactly. Watch. watch Ralph breaks the internet and then just build with Legos. Don't watch it. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to let folks know about the Walt Disney Family Museum meetup that I was on last weekend with the Leaving Today podcast folks and also Disney historian and author of Eat Like Walt, Marcy Smothers. We had a great time. We had a lot of listeners there I was the, who listened to both shows, and which was cool. And because, because our shows sort of complement each other, because Leaving Today podcast talks um, – a lot about current events and things and a little about history. And then, and then of course, you know, we're history and with a little about, you know, current Disney events. And so, so, um, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I sort of assumed Marcy would take the lead on the tour, and Marcy very generously um, handed it over to me. So mm-hmm. I spoke for three hours. <laughs> nice, nice. And but Marcy did jump in with, uh, you know, with uh, things she learned from visiting Marceline or in her um, interviews that she's done. She's writing another book, Walk Like Walt. And and oh. so I know we'll have hmm. to have her back on the show for that. And and I'm not. She did announce it at, at um, Disneyland, so uh, so I'm not giving anything away. I think at Food and Wine, or she announced it at Walt Disney World at Food and Wine. And so uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And um, I did get a bottle of wine out of it. Uh, some listeners who work for a winery in Napa, and they didn't give me permission to mention it. Um, I didn't ask, so so I won't mention it. But um, they were very generous and gave me uh, a very nice bottle of wine that I'm looking forward to enjoying. So we had a, we had a good time. So uh, and I learned a few things from Marcy, which was fun. Yes, yes. So so I, so I want to I want to thank everybody for um, for turning out and for our hosts, the Leaving Today podcast, for putting this together, and Marcy, who is just absolutely wonderful so now by the time this show airs i don't know are are we going to be at our deadline for submitting Mm. um questions for our q a episodes yes we will be at the deadline okay yes so never mind (laughs) (laughs) so anyway yes our deadline it was march 8th so if you if we've jogged your memory oh no i didn't get my question in hold off and uh, and get it in for the next round. So exactly, great advice. Okay, great. All right. Well, 
Over the next two episodes of Connecting with Walt, we are going to take a look at the lineup of films for the Monday, March 25th, 2019 broadcast of Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault. And since we're talking about films and Craig is the film critic for the Diz, I thought it'd be a, this would be a good time to talk about... Uh, the, I've sort of been watching this now for over a year about some of the controversies over Rotten Tomatoes and the latest one about removing the want-to-see percentage score from their site. Now, I've been watching sort of what was going on with um, Rotten Tomatoes because I'm a big fan of Star Trek. I am old enough to have watched the original series when it first aired when I was quite young, and I'm a big fan of the Orville. On Fox and Craig, we were talking before the show. You know, before the show, and you are as well. And what? uh, And I do listen to some when I'm not listening to the Diz podcasts and a few others Disney ones. I listen to some podcasts or watch on YouTube some that are um, Star Trek or Orville or um, Marvel. Um, cinematic universe focused, or or DC comic universe focused, and they they were bringing up how um, on Rotten Tomatoes for the Orville in its first season, the critics' ratings um, were super low, and but the audience ratings were really high, and then when the Disney Fox merger came about. In the second season, suddenly critics' ratings went up and were more on par with what the reviewer ratings were. On For Star Trek Discovery, which I'm sort of having a hard time slogging through because they, uh, I, I, I really love Star Trek. They, um, they sort of threw canon out the window. With this one, it's more in a J.J. Abrams universe. They just won't admit it. Um, Critics' reviews are really high, and the audience ratings are really low um, for it consistently. And um, so it's come into question as these media conglomerates merge, and critics are more and more dependent on them for content and getting invited to, um, you know, to film debuts and all that, that they're, they're... sort of maybe capitulating a little more to the desires of the these film companies, then I'm going to sort of hand it over to you because this is the part I'm a little fuzzy on what was going on, Craig, because there was this whole controversy over Ghostbusters 2016, and I guess there was some sort of social message in it and i didn't see the film but now it got resurrected with captain marvel and comments by brie larson who's the star and it led to the want to see percentage for captain marvel plummeting to where rotten tomatoes suddenly on february 25th removed that want to see percentage saying it was part of their long-term strategy but on their home screen, home page, they never removed the explanation for the want to see percentage, which led people to believe this was more in response, perhaps, to Disney 
um, saying, hey, we need to stop this free fall. Yeah. And then there was a, there were a whole lot of interviews talking about internet trolls and misogynists and all this kind of stuff. So it's thrown in the question for a lot of people about sort of the veracity of Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's I, here's the deal. Overall, there's no there's no, in my opinion, review website. Uh, so whether it be Rotten Tomatoes or or the IMDb Internet Movie Database, or even, I mean, even to a point, Metacritic, even though that just kind of similar to Rotten Tomatoes, just gathers scores and puts it uh, in a in a certain percentage. Um, there's no perfect method out there for it. I really don't care for Rotten Tomatoes, so I, you know, I I don't know why they removed the everything that they have and said they'll no longer take audience scores until the the movie comes out that to me sends me a message that their back end isn't set up to deal with with trolls in the same way that like imdb is where imdb knows which users are actually like trusted ones so that way they will kind of level out people just constantly giving 10 out of 10 to everything and or one out of 10 because you know there are people out there that that can't ever figure out what a five or a six or a four is because they only know those two numbers at the end of each spectrum looping back around to rotten tomatoes though uh it's again a lot of people can can jump ahead and start rating something bad just because they don't care about it you know whether it is something like ghostbusters where there was a lot of people upset over over everything surrounding it going from a a a movie with the cast of the original and then move over to it being kind of a a reinventing of it with an all-female cast and everything are up to captain marvel now where there was a lot of people upset about uh, just kind of the the start of everything happening with captain marvel um it doesn't make sense to me genuinely i don't i don't i i have hated on movies before they've come out before and you know sometimes you you put your foot in your mouth and other times you feel right about it but um it's regardless it's it's dumb to go in with preconceived notions because you're only you're only even if if it's like the worst thing this is going to be awful it's going to be terrible even then you're you might be inhibiting yourself from truly enjoying it but with rotten tomatoes in particular i have a problem it's something that i've seen before and i was looking through captain marvel reviews today because again peeking behind the curtain today was the day that the embargo went up on reviews and where my problem comes in with rotten tomatoes is that they aren't even with like the top critics for instance with this they are not as straightforward as they should be with what is rotten and what is what is considered fresh and you can go through the list for captain marvel reviews and you can see someone giving it like a two out of four or a two and a half out of four and it'll be considered rotten and then you go to another review and you'll see that it got the same exact scores, either a two or two and a half out of four. And it will all of a sudden have a, a, a fresh view 
on it. And that's just, you know, I know verbiage inside the review can make one seem more positive, but if they're both giving it the same score, shouldn't they both be either rotten or both be fresh, one of the two? Mm -hmm. And you see that stuff on there a lot. So even, like, as far as audiences that aren't major critics, you know, the fact that they can they can alter the score of a movie before it comes out if they really, really want to. That's not okay. But to me, it's also not okay when there doesn't seem to be a straightforward honesty to a lot of the times they consider something fresh or rotten based on the review. I, I also don't know. For all I know, when you submit a review to Rotten Tomatoes, I, maybe it Hey, maybe it doesn't just pull them automatically. Maybe you have to submit your review to there and then tell them whether or not you thought it was fresh or rotten. That might be the way it works. I've never read about it. I don't care that much, even though I've just been talking now for five minutes and you think I would. But <laughs> it, I just it, it all doesn't make sense to me. I it, that's why the best thing you can do is don't read any reviews except for mine. And <laughs> And just go in without knowing anything ever. And don't watch as many movie trailers as possible, too, because they ruin everything all the time. Yeah. And now I will step off my soapbox. All right. Yeah, I, I have um, heard it opened in France this week, uh, Captain Marvel. I've heard a couple of the reviews. Um, well, it's not going to be it's they're not the level of Thor Ragnarok. Let's just put it that way. And um, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to see it no matter what because I like Marvel superhero films. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm, and I don't and I don't know anything about Captain Marvel as I said in previous episodes. That for some reason that I don't know if the, if Captain Marvel was around when I was a boy, but um, somehow if it was, if 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 she was, I I missed it. Yeah, and then somehow there's Shazam. And I'm only <laughs> just getting clued into that, that somehow has a Captain Marvel connection. And I, I, so I don't get, I haven't figured that one out. I only know the one infamous Shazam movie. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't quite understand how it relates to Captain Marvel. But Wait, by in, infamous Shazam movie, which movie? Was that the one with um, uh, Shaquille O'Neal? Shaquille O'Neal, that's, yeah. That's Kazam. I believe, Kazam. Oh, I believe okay. before this was coming out, Shazam <laughs> was like one of those, uh, one of the things that everyone had come to believe was a movie that they remembered from when they were a kid. And they <laughs> thought it starred someone. As, I think, I, I, I don't even remember what. I thought but, it was a cartoon series somehow when I was really little. Yeah, I, I, all I know is I'm glad there's a new trailer out for Shazam because I've been watching the same one, I feel like, for nine months now in every single movie I go to see. And, I haven't even seen the trailer. Oh, so. I, then apparently someone just really hates me at the AMC <laughs> Disney Springs. But, uh, you know, I can, I can imagine why that would happen. I have my tickets for Captain Marvel, though, and I am... I, I'm, Going in still, I think, with pretty much no expectations. Could be good, could be bad, doesn't matter to me either way. Uh, But I did see a couple reviews mention that they felt like it was more of a step back to the original Marvel movies, like Mm -hmm. Captain America First Avenger. Oh, I like that one. Oh, see, that's... I. 
despised. I know you did not like it. Movies. I know. So they, yeah. the reviews I saw said it gets back more to that tone. So if you're a fan of those those movies towards the beginning of the cinematic universe, then this might be might be up your alley. But mm-hmm. we'll have to see. Well. Well, you know, every every character has to go through their character arc. So if this, assuming mm-hmm. this is the beginning of hers, it would make sense. It would be more like the early films. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, well, well, thank you. Yeah, that that was interesting. And you know, the, I I look, I do once in a while when I when I'm preparing for this episode where we're talking about Turner Classic Movies, Treasures in the Disney Vault. I, I do look at Rotten Tomatoes periodically just to see. Okay, what do they say about yeah. these classic oh. films? So, so and so, Craig and I are going to share some information about the March 25th broadcast of Treasures from the Disney Vault films and shorts. We won't go into really heavy critiques of these films. Instead, we'll share some stories in hopes that um, those stories will increase your enjoyment and appreciation of these films. But we will share memories of of these films and um, and you know what we do think of them. So, Craig, this month is animal themed um, perhaps it's in anticipation of the upcoming April 17th theatrical release of Disney Nature Penguins to celebrate um, Earth Day hmm, I mean it's I guess yeah it is spring and everything's coming coming to life and animals are coming out of their holes from hibernating and mm-hmm. interacting with more animals uh, if this wasn't the mindset whoever set up this lineup was in then at least they could steal it from us in the future if they ever want to do an animal themed related mm-hmm. one again because I think yeah. we I think we are pretty solid on that we mm-hmm. we faked our our way through it a little bit <laughs> so Craig do you want to run through the lineup I will yes at uh, of course check your local listings but it's going to be the same I believe for everyone except maybe central time zone but at 8pm we have the 1936 short film Elmer Elephant a silly symphony uh, at 8.15pm we have the 1955 true life adventure The African Lion at 9.30 we have Charlie the Lonesome Cougar from 1967 making its second appearance on Treasures from the Disney Vault you might remember it from back on Thursday, March 16th of the year 2017, I believe. Wow, then you have a good memory. I've got that uh, that lineup pulled up in front of me. I did remember <laughs> that Charlie the Lonesome Cougar's been on before because I DVR'd it the last time around when it was on. But, uh, you know what, I should have just made myself seem like I had a good memory. Anyways, <laughs> at 11 o'clock, we have Yellowstone Cubs from 1963. Put that one together. At 12 a.m., we have The Country Cousin from 1936. 12.15, we have The Wild Country from 1970. 2 a.m., we have Cheetah from 1989. 3.30 a.m., everyone's fifth favorite dog, I'm not quite sure, uh, but Benji the Hunted from 1987. And in... At 5 a.m., you have the 1974 classic "The Bears and I," which I believe is a is an autobiography of of Ryan Clavin. But I'm <laughs> I'm not sure on that. Oh my! Alrighty. Okay, what are the top four dogs before we get Benji number five? <laughs> I think you have to go with Lassie number one. Okay. Uh, Rin Tin Tin 
Yeah, he was one of my favorites when I was a boy. Um, because I'm a liter- literary uh, savant, I would then choose Clifford the Big Red Dog. Ah, I hear they're coming out with a movie about him. Oh, interesting. Uh, then I'm going to go with, uh, for the Disney side of things, I'm going to go with Old Yeller. Ah, uh, okay. And then we'll go with Benji after that. Okay. Okay, sounds good. All right. All right, well, let's settle in with a box of animal crackers, popcorn, and a drink, and let's take a look at the cartoon short to launch the evening. So at 8 p.m., we are treated to the Silly Symphony Elmer Elephant, and this was directed by Wilfred Jackson. It was released on March 28, 1936. Now, to give you an idea how long a, a short takes, or this particular one, the story outline was submitted on April 3rd, 1935, and the animation was completed on October 9th, 1935. Now, basically, now there are, there are going to be spoilers, you know, in this, so... Um Anyway, as, as we talk about the films. Um, well, and so basically what happens here is Elmer Elephant skips through the woods on his way to Tilly Tiger's birthday party. And Tilly is very happy to see him, but the other animal children tease Elmer's big trunk. So Elmer walks into the woods to cry and is befend, befriended by a, an elderly giraffe who rebuilds Elmer's self-confidence by telling him that people used to tease him about his long neck. Well, a fire breaks out, trapping Tilly in her little treehouse hut, and Elmer rushes to rescue her, gaining the assistance of his new giraffe friend and some friendly pelicans. So using his trunk as a fire hose, Elmer puts out the flames, saves Tilly, and is hailed a hero. So now the animators are Hamilton um, Ham Lusk, Paul Hopkins, Bob Wickersham, Wolfgang Willie Reitherman, Jerry Clyde Geronimi, Milt Schaefer, Eddie Strickland, and Ward Kimball. Now, most of the animation was assigned to Ham Lusk, and he delegated some of it to his assistant, Ward Kimball. So Paul Hopkins animated the the animal children at the party, like Joey the Hippo, um, the kids who were taunting Elmer, the pelicans, and the kids fighting the fire with a blanket. Um, Bob Wickersham animated the scenes where the kids huddle, um, the little parade charging Elmer, Elmer hiding his nose, and when Elmer falls downhill. Willie Reitherman animated the giraffe, Jerry Geronimi animated the monkey and the ostrich firefighters. Milt Schaefer animated the kids fighting the fire and the final scene of the kids cheering. And Eddie Strickland animated the flames because the flames, when you watch this, they they are characters in themselves. And and I I ran through all these different animators because I think it's, it's interesting to see how in this one short, how the animators all do bits and pieces of of characters and scenes that all get combined into the the one finished product. So I always find that fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so the working title of the cartoon was The Little Elephant and the story was originally proposed by Bianca um oh, mispronounce her last name Majorly and who wrote a 13-page script titled Romance of Baby Elephant. And this is reworked into a storyline with the title character being named Tubby. 
and a sequel was planned with the title Timid Elmer, but it was never completed. Instead, it was serialized in the Color Silly Symphonies comic strip that we talked about in a previous episode. And Elmer merchandise was also released. Uh, Elmer would later appear in the crowd scenes in the Silly Symphony Toby Tortoise Returns. And I don't know if you caught the, these guys in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Craig, but, but Elmer had a cameo with Joey Hippo. I who don't Roger Rabbit. Honestly, now that you're you're saying it, I don't think I've ever noticed him. I didn't <laughs> at all. I'm trying to think, was it in the studio scene where they're you know, remember when they're walking through it and you see the characters from Fantasia? Yeah. I have no idea. It, it, it would either be from that moment or the only other thing I can think of is when you get towards the end where they all come together and oh, right. could just be like a small the crowd scene. Yeah, because yeah. like I think, I think if I remember correctly, every single time I watch it, I'm trying to look out for as many characters, and then I spot uh, Brer Rabbit, and mm-hmm. then it's like, you, your eyes just lock on, and you can't look at anything else happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you think of uh, of old Elmer here, Elmer Elephant? Yeah, this is uh, this is one of those ones that I remember watching as a kid. It would it would pop on a lot, um, and you know, of course, cute elephant. It's it was right up there in the line with like uh, Lambert the sheepish lion and yes. some of those other uh, Disney animated uh, uh, kind of silly symphony. Um, cute animals in that mm-hmm. way and so so i really was fond of it and if i i want to say i remember correctly but i think i remember it being one of the um they would use parts of elmer for one of the music videos back when disney channel had their their little uh, dtv yes. or something it yeah. was called yeah, yeah. and i could i couldn't even tell you what song it was that it played with but i remember I, I remember a lot of them, and I hear music in my head, but it all just kind of sounds like, ah, nah, nah. but um, it's been a long time since I've seen mm-hmm. any of them, so I'm glad I can even remember that much of the music, but I, I feel like I remember seeing Elmer in one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. This is an adorable film. It has a very sweet uh it has a very sweet moral to it. And I think it's something children can relate to. I think they can relate to the story and and they can relate to the lesson that is taught in watching this. And the animation's very good. You know, um, the animation holds up, you know, considering, you know, when this was made. So, um, yeah, no, yeah, I agree. It's, I agree. It's, it's a nice intro to the evening. So, so after that colossal introduction to the evening, we settle in for our first feature film at 8.15 p.m. from Walt Disney's True Life Adventure series. It's The African Lion. Um, the film, which was shot over three years by the husband and wife team of Alfred and Elma Malott. Uh, and they exposed over 100,000 feet of film for this feature that tells the story of the life of lions within the complexity of the African ecosystem. Now, the Malats traveled through Kenya, Uganda, Tanganyika, South Africa, and Zululand to collect the footage. 
Um, the film was produced by Walt Disney. Associate producer was Ben Sharpstein. It was directed by James Algar and it was written by James Algar and Winston Hibbler, Ted Sears, and Jack Moffat. It's narrated by Winston Hibbler. And the special processes were by Ub Iwerks. So, uh, this is a stunning film in its photography and story. I I watched this, I think, last year. I, I, mm. I, for some reason, I dug out the uh, the. I have it on DVD, and I dug it out and watched it. And it, it's notice it's notable because it's the first time audiences saw lions on a large screen in their natural habitat. Mm. You know, today we're so used to nature documentaries, but back then when Walt produced these True Life Adventure series and the People and Places series. Audiences had not seen this before. And so they'd never seen these jungle animals, you know, in theaters. So the film follows the true life adventure formula without resorting to the gimmickry um, for which the earlier true life adventures received criticism. And we've talked about some of those before, like, you know, in, in the American desert and the the scorpions dancing to the hoedown and all that critics came down hard on that but it but you know it captivated children who were um watching these and maybe would have been a little squeamish about you know seeing scorpions and other bugs yeah yeah um so the, the film is interesting and entertaining for adults as well as children. And I think the story draws viewers in. There are lighthearted moments, such as scenes of baboons at play. And I think the narration engages younger audiences without talking down to adults. There are some exquisite scenes showing antelopes leaping, a pride of lions lounging in the heat beneath the shade of a huge tree. And that's the clip you'll most often come across on YouTube. Um, A thrilling chase of an antelope by a cheetah, a lioness stalking her prey, um, elephants digging a well during a dry season. There's a dust storm, a locust invasion, and a whole lot more before the tropical rains returns and sort of starts the the cycle again, the yearly cycle uh, of the African savanna. Um, There is is a a scene the Millet's captured in which a rhino is trapped in a deep mud hole and is struggling unsuccessfully to escape. And normally the Millets were always passive observers when filming wildlife. But in this case, they decided it was more important to be compassionate human beings. So with considerable effort, they managed to dislodge the rhino from the mud hole. In return, the rhino charged after Alfred Millot, who ran furiously back into his trailer before the rhino rammed it with his horn. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah. Now, The African Lion was the Millet's favorite film, and they were forever grateful to Walt for enabling them to work on this project for three years without economic pressure or interference. 
So the African Lion was released on September 14, 1955, to positive reviews and a mod- modest box office of $2.1 million, which was on par with the previous True Life Adventure films. Now, the African Lion unlike the previous films, did not get nominated for an Academy Award, but it did receive the Silver Bear Documentaries Award at the 6th Berlin International Film Festival. And the African Lion was fully restored and released a home video on the third volume of the True Life Adventures series. And the African Lion can be considered the precursor to the 2011 Disney nature film African Cats, which also is a live African uh, you know, documentary film. So, Craig, have you seen the African Lion? Yeah, it's been it's been a while since I watched it, but I'm ready to to refresh my memory. And with it coming on so early in the night, I know that uh, know that even though I always have to wake up for work early on Tuesday mornings, I will I'll be able to uh, still enjoy it and then maybe head to bed one or two <laughs> after. Good. I'll be interested in hearing what you think. Uh, you know, I. I you know, do do you do you think it holds up well, considering now that nature documentaries are so common? But yeah. keeping in mind, it was you know amongst the first of its kind. I, I definitely you appreciate know. documentaries uh, from the the fifties, sixties, and even even seventies a lot more because I, I think about how long lenses are out there and how good technology is that they can get this stunning cinematography by being just so so far away i mean they could even send in drones with these things now if they really Mm -hmm. wanted to and and go all out but i feel like they all they paved the way back in the 50s for for these types of films and everyone today is is just really benefits by what all of their elders did before them so i I get bored sometimes with with new documentaries. I, I love the old ones. I do too. I do too. And and like you said, they were so groundbreaking. And I'm hoping that yeah, the one that really gets short shrift is the Walt Disney's People in Places series. And yeah. that's really never been released. And that was so interesting because you know back in the in the fifties. People in the United States, we just didn't get exposed to other cultures, and yeah. Walt—that was a big thing for Walt, even in in Disneyland. You know the the you know the parades, you know the Christmas parade. He'd invite cultural groups to to march, you know, in it, and uh, and and for Walt to do this, he he brought the world into you know into the theaters into people's lives, and I'm hoping with Disney Plus, some of these will will get to see these, you know, and it, it will have archaic and and outdated concepts, but I, I hope they they'll run these for their historic value. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, you can take away a lot of the stuff they even do in it and still be able to appreciate the look of the films and and Mm -hmm. see what they had to go through to to make it happen. So, um, yeah, they're they're awesome. Yeah. So, well, at 9.30 p.m., we travel from Africa to the Cascade Mountains of Washington State for the 1967 film Charlie the Lonesome Cougar. 
And although this film was greenlit by Walt Disney, filming didn't begin until after he passed, making this the first film to go into production without Walt's involvement. The film was written and directed by Winston Hibbler. Rex Allen, who had narrated many Disney nature and Western films, including The Incredible Journey and The Legend of Lobo, and had voiced the father for the original Carousel of Progress and the grandfather of the current version, narrates this film. And this will be the last film that Rex Allen narrates for Disney. Now, filming was outsourced to Cangary Limited. They had also filmed um, Nikki, Wild Dog of the North, The Legend of Lobo, and The Incredible Journey for Disney. The human cast is entirely made up of unknowns, most of whom were natives of Washington near the Columbia River Gorge, where the film was shot on location. It was also filmed partially at the Weyerhaeuser um, Mill in Oh, here's another. I don't know why. They, they, they do this just to get me. Enumkla, Washington. I think that's how you say it. And partially on the North Fork of the Clearwater River in northern Idaho, where one of the last river log drives to occur in the United States was filmed. Four different cougars were used in the film. Jack Spears and Franklin Marks wrote the main credit song, Talking About Charlie. Now, as a baby, Charlie's mother was killed, leaving him alone, and Jess Bradley finds Charlie, takes him in, and raises him. Charlie experiences some adventures growing up, including some playtime with a black bear cub and visits to his friend Potlatch for snacks. And Potlatch, though, has a pet terrier named Chainsaw. And this is Charlie's nemesis in the logging camp where Charlie grows up. And this rivalry leads to problems, including a wrecked kitchen and a trip down the river as part of the logging crew, which of course leads to more problems, including another destroyed kitchen. And Jess is forced to lock Charlie in a cage, which doesn't hold him for long. Charlie hears another cougar in the distance one night and decides to break free and investigate. The two have a good time playing, but it turns sour when his new friend won't share a meal he has recently caught. Charlie moves on and finds himself getting a free meal with a farmer milking his cow. Again, this does not turn out well for Charlie, and of course... Mayhem ensues on the farm. Charlie finds himself lost and on his own, and he spends the summer hunting and getting by until one day when he becomes the hunted by a pack of dogs and hunters. He manages to escape and finds himself back at the logging camp. However, after spending the summer in the wild, his natural instincts have kicked in, and he's now more wild than tame. So Jess has no option but to release him back into the wild where he finds love and lives happily ever after. Now, Charlie the Lonesome Cougar was released on October 8th, 1967 as part of a double bill with The Jungle Book, which was released on the same day. The Jungle Book earned $13 million in its original release and was a huge hit, but it's impossible to determine what percentage of the audience stayed to watch Charlie. The studio didn't have enough faith in Charlie to release it separately, 
And, you know, in watching this, it does feel more like the type of film that would have been shown on Walt Disney's wonderful World of Color television show, rather than as a theatrical release. So, Craig, have you seen Charlie the Lonesome Cougar? Yes, I watched it the last time around when it was That's on. That's right. And it's, I, I would say the best way for me to describe it is very non-offensive. It's mm-hmm. not the worst thing that you're ever going to see and uh, on the treasures from the disney vault it's not the greatest and uh it's just it's it's it is what it is it's it's worth a watch if you haven't watched it before for me i i would probably take some time off to to do a couple other things uh maybe in another three or four years i'll rewatch it but it's it's good to watch for the first time, at least. Mm-hmm. And there's some beautiful scenery. There's some excitement. Uh, you know, when Char- Charlie hitches a ride on a on a log going down a log fume, that's that's sort of fun. Oh, we can, you know, there's, absolutely. There's a few other things, you know. So, uh, I mean, it's impressive what Charlie does. So, oh, and, yeah, no. There, it's... There's some fun moments. I, I, definitely the youngsters are going to enjoy this film. Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. So, so now we have a short break at 11 p.m. with the 1963 Disney short subject Yellowstone Cubs that was released on June 1st, 1963, alongside Savage Sam, uh, which was the Disney sequel to Old Yeller and also with Summer Magic. Uh, It was produced by Walt Disney and co-produced by Winston Hibbler. It was directed by Charles Draper, and it was narrated by Rex Allen. So in this this short, Tuffy and Tubby, twin black bear cubs born to the elderly Nokomis in Yellowstone National Park, learn from their mother how to obtain food from tourists. So so shades of Yogi and Boo Boo. Um, a vacationing family stops and failing to follow park regulations on feeding wildlife, the children take a bag of marshmallows from the food box on the roof of their trailer. Uh, whilst the father is feeding Nokomis, her frisky cubs climb onto the trailer and begin to eat from the open food box. Nokomis, reaching for more tidbits, rips the father's coat. He mistakes the gesture for an attack and quickly drives off, trapping Tuffy and Tubby in the food box. At the campgrounds, the cubs escape whilst the father seeks a ranger to report the attack. Meanwhile, Nokomis follows her cubs sent to the campground and the father identifies her to Joe the ranger as his attacker. Now, Park regulations require that a bad bear be branded with paint on the forehead and following a second disturbance shot on sight. Joe, not realizing that such an old bear might have cubs, tranquilizes brands and banishes Nokomis to a remote section of the park. Nokomis immediately continues her search for Tuffy and Tubby, who are wreaking havoc in the park. Nokomis catches up with them at Old Faithful Inn, where they have either eaten or destroyed everything in the kitchen. The innkeeper spots Nokomis and reports her to the rangers who arrive at the inn with loaded guns. There, they witness a reunion between the mother and the cubs, and confident that Nokomis will once again be the good bear she has always been, they allow her to go free. So, so Craig, have you seen the Yellowstone Cubs? 
No, I don't actually think I have before, which is interesting to me because when you're mixing Disney with, with Yellowstone, it seems like something that normally is, you know, perfect for me, but I just don't have any recollection of ever seeing this. So this is going to be a do not miss for me. Yeah, I think I saw this when it was televised. And it's it has all of the prerequisite hijinks of the little cubs that you would expect yeah, from I this. love hijinks. I mean, they steal a boat. I mean, they they do it all. And um, why not? It's 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 cute to watch, and uh, you know, it, it's all predictable and and all of that. But it's just a fun. It's just a fun sort of romp through Yellowstone, you know. And um, again, I think younger children are going to absolutely love this. So um, yeah, this film. yeah. And the the cubs are cute and adorable. So um, so it's 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 just sweet. People will love. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. So so that's that's the first part of the lineup. And next week, we are going to discuss the Treasures from the Disney Vault being broadcast in the wee hours of the next morning from 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. So you'll want to join us again next week to find out about those um, classic films. Well, Craig, it's it's time again this week for this day in Disney history for the week of March 10th. And since we're we just talked about, you know, wildlife and all the an, the animal-themed um films that are on Turner Classic um, Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault coming up, I have to start out with a wildlife question for oh, March 10th. Okay. So, a wildlife tourist attraction in Boca Raton, Florida, opened to the public on March 10, 1953. Walt Disney frequently visited and even considered purchasing the 300-acre site. What is the name of this theme park? Hmm. I, I do not remember ever hearing about what this is. Well, it was called Africa USA. And Africa USA was chosen over Disneyland for the cover of the August 1st, 1960 issue of Life magazine. Uh, The park closed on September um, in September 1961 for a variety of reasons. One one was is that uh, housing development started to encroach upon it um another reason is that um even though the originally the animals were captured and brought over from africa it had been many years since any had been brought over but the fish and wildlife sort of claimed that oh some some red ct fly or something was on the animals and he sprayed them and killed some of the animals and and the the owners just had it with with fighting developers and fighting the state and all that so he closed down the property um so now if you um ever are in boca raton florida and you are in the camino garden subdivision that was africa usa never been to boca maybe one day yeah maybe 
soon. Okay, and the lagoon that's in Camino Gardens subdivision, that was the lagoon for Africa, USA. So, Okay, March 11th. Shirley MacLaine wins the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Actress in a Musical Comedy for her role in Irma La Douce. Uh, the Golden Globe Awards are presented at the Coconut Grove Ambassador Hotel on March 10th, 1964. Which Disney actress was also nominated in this category? Um, hmm. Trying to think if it was 1964, that means we're looking at 63. But I. I, I don't know. I, I can't even fathom a guess. It was Haley Mills for her performance in Walt Disney's Summer Magic. Hmm. Well, that's surprising. Yeah. It is. It's, it's thinking those two films and actresses are up against each other. And she was young in Summer Magic. She was. So yeah. She was a young adult then, yeah. Okay, March 12th. The film A Far Off Place, starring Reese Witherspoon and Ethan Embry, is released through Walt Disney Pictures and Amblin Entertainment on March 12th, 1993. Which animated short accompanied this film? I do not know. I have never heard of A Far Off Place. I didn't know Reese Witherspoon was acting that early yeah yeah i i remember watching this i enjoyed it i like this film but playing ahead of a far off place is the animated short trail mix-up featuring baby herman and roger rabbit yeah that makes sense timeline there so yeah yeah yeah. that was that was a fun short i wish they still i wish they'd continued all that with baby Herman and roger rabbit okay Here we go. March 13th. A new illuminated sign greeted guests to Disney's California Adventure on March 13th, 2009. What did the sign read? Um, It was related to an attraction. Uh... Was it just the name of the attraction? Um, I don't, not really. I, I don't was, know. Okay. I, my brain's not working. <laughs> the sign that was installed overnight on the California Scream and Roller Coaster reads Paradise Pier oh. and reflects the vintage Disney theming that is part of the park's reimagining. That is something I obviously know. I feel stupid. I was thinking, I don't know where my brain was at on that one. Uh-huh. Oh, I don't know if I would have put it all together. So, <laughs> Okay, here we go. March 14th, which Disney princess was officially inducted into the Disney Princess Royal Court at the New York Palace Hotel in New York City on March 14th, 2010? If we're talking 2010, I'm going to say probably Tiana would have been the last princess. So That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep, from Princess and the Frog, Princess Tiana. And actress Noni Rose, the voice of Tiana, was in attendance. Mm-hmm. There you go. 
Yeah, yeah, and and it's fitting. We're recording this on Mardi Gras. Oh so. man, did you think about that before? I absolutely did. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, uh, March fifteenth. Andrew Jackson, the seventh United States president, is born in the Waxhaws area near the border between North and South Carolina on March 15, 1767. Before appearing in the Magic Kingdoms, the Hall of Presidents, with his fellow chief executives, what was his Disney theme park connection? Um... I am not quite sure. Um, uh, was he included in like a video of great moments with Mr. Lincoln or something? No, this predates um, great moments with Mr. Lincoln by a decade. Oh, what what is it? He, Andrew Jackson, was the first president to be exhibited in a Disney park. A mannequin of Old Hickory was part of the Davy Crockett exhibit in Frontierland, and it was later moved to Tom Sawyer Island. I would not have gotten that if you would have threatened my life. (laughs) I remember this. Yeah, I remember when it was over in Tomorrowland. I mean, I'm sorry, in Frontierland, sort of near where the shooting gallery was, if I remember correctly. And then it got moved over to the stockade. So. Yeah. And so, anyway. Okay. Finally, March 16th. Which Disney theme park held its grand opening on March 16th, 2002? 2002. That... Um, was that Walt Disney Studios? It is, yeah. Located at the Disneyland Resort Paris in France. It is Disney's 10th theme park and its smallest. And as everyone should remember from when I talked about Disneyland Paris, my my personal favorite. (laughs) Yes. Are you talking about Disneyland Paris or the Walt Disney Disney Studios Park? (laughs) It's any any place that has uh, Armageddon as an attraction is you know it's a top quality place oh absolutely is that still there didn't they close that yeah that that is um that is already closed and then i think this summer is when rocket roller coaster will finally close and that entire back half of the park i guess is i I don't remember which part of the the expansion it is so it's either either star i I don't even remember what's all going in their expansion, but I don't know. Is that is it Marvel in that area? I can't remember if Marvel was in the first plans. I want to say it was like Frozen, Marvel, something else, and then maybe Galaxy's Edge later on. But I just don't remember because I thought they were going to retheme Rock and Roller Coaster, and that's why I thought it was Marvel. For some reason, well, maybe. Sure. Yeah, I, I. I don't know. Well, I guess we will either look it up after the show, or we will. Uh, someone will be nice enough to just pass the information on, so we don't have to research. I 
hope that you enjoyed our uh, our discussion about the first few films that are going to be on the Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault on March 25th. If you miss any of these films or your DVR is too full to record all of these, you you know many are available on home video and various streaming services and even YouTube. Um, for references in preparing for this episode, I used uh, the books, the Disney films by Leonard Maltin and Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. Some helpful websites were the Disney Films, the Disney Wiki, and Turner Classic Movies. Um, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World uh thursdays on the universal edition podcast i guess technically mondays on the disneyland edition podcast Mm -hmm. and i think that's it so then of course as always on facebook twitter and instagram at teleclaster what about you michael well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me on and Craig on Twitter at the official Connecting with Walt page at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>